Many of you know this, but my wife, Corey, and I, we have four kids ranging from four years old to 10 years old. Uh, and it's an adventure. It's, uh, it's always a lot of fun. Uh, but, you know, over the years, as they've gotten a little older, their social circle has expanded from their mother and me to their siblings, to cousins and other family members, to friends and teammates and classmates, and uh, it just continues to expand. And those that have older kids or those that can just remember as you got older, you know that those things, that, that social circle, it continued to expand beyond you know, your, your family-centric, uh, your home life. And so uh, a few years ago, our second son, Branson, <clears throat> who's eight now, uh, he was trying to describe to us a new friend that he had made. And, and he was, I mean, he was doing all kinds of stuff. He was describing everything that he could describe about this friend, and we just couldn't place him. It was evidently somebody we were supposed to know from church. And so he was trying to explain, trying to explain, trying to explain, and just could not. And finally, at the end of it, he was like, you know, the, the brown one. Now, when you hear that, because you have context... Because you understand historical tendencies and news cycles and media and hurt and pain, you go, wow, that's, you know, he shouldn't have said that. He should have come up with another way. But out of the mouth of a four-year-old, he was using skin color as descriptive, not in the context of hundreds of years of derogatory meaning. He was just describing what he saw. And if you can think back to being a child or if you have children, you, you probably remember a time when they kind of operated maybe the same way, where skin color was something that was descriptive only. It had no context. It had no meaning. It, had, it didn't mean anything bad. It wasn't something that was divisive. It was just something that was descriptive. Like, that's the color hair they have, or this is the shirt they were wearing. It was just something that the child saw and observed. And so this was something that he was using to try to describe. My niece... Uh, in our family, uh, is biracial. She is, some people call her mixed. She has one parent of one race. She has one parent of another race. And she's the oldest cousin, the oldest niece or nephew, grandchild on that side of the family. So every other cousin, including all of my kids, have grown up around her. And so they, they love her. They know her. We've talked about how beautiful she is. We've talked about how talented she is because we, that's how we feel about her. She's our family. She's blood. And so when my kids now, my oldest two boys especially, are talking about, it's very interesting to me, when they're talking about girls that they find attractive, it's funny to me because a lot of the girls that they find attractive look a lot like my niece. They, they have this view of what beauty is. They have this view of what someone looks like that we find or that they may find beautiful. And so they see some comparison there and they are connected to that. Now, again, when you hear that, there's something that probably happens in your mind or your heart, or maybe you had come out of a different context. Maybe you kind of grew up in a totally different type of home. Maybe you grew up in a totally different type of scenario where something like that just rises up in you. There's something that you feel. There's something that you think. Today, we are going to look at the topic of racism. Now, as we have looked at all of these tough topics thus far and the ones that are to come, they are, by their very nature, tough topics. And so over the next few minutes, I encourage you not to push back, but to really lean in, to really help all of us not to stand on our opinion, not to try to think about what we think we know or what we think we feel or how we have responded in the past but to really allow all of us to go to God's word to try to determine what it is that God's word would say to us about the subject, the tough topic of racism. Now, here's what I know. 
I know that I have lived my entire life in the southeastern United States, really about one, maybe one and a half generations removed from Dr. Martin Luther King and segregated water fountains and segregated schools and buses where people were asked to move to the back. And I understand that some of you have lived even greater the racial tensions that existed in this part of the country, maybe other parts of the country. Uh, you, You have experiences that I don't have. But here's what I know. I've lived within a subculture of our country and of our world where racism was almost this undercurrent. It was an undertone. It was something that still existed, but it was no longer acceptable to really talk about. And so we thought about it. We joked about it. We talked about it in safe places, but we've never really tackled it. We've never really wrestled with this subject And so today as we start this idea, this tough topic of racism, I think it's important for us to all be on the same page with the definition of racism. Because when you hear that word or you you think about that, I'm sure there's a lot of different ways that you might go. So the definition that we're going to use today for racism is prejudice, discrimination, or antagonism directed against someone of a different race based on the belief that one's own race is superior. So that's the definition that we're using today. Prejudice, discrimination, or antagonism directed against someone of a different race based on the belief that one's own race is superior. Now, we aren't talking about necessarily being colorblind. I'm not asking you to try to turn a blind eye to the things that you may see. But what I am asking you is that instead of using those things as divisive, let's learn to celebrate the distinctives within each culture, within each race, within each people group, even within individual races and ethnicities and nationalities so that we can understand how those things are special to each group of people. We can celebrate them without them being something that is divisive. Now, here's what we know. Racism is not a new problem. It's not a new issue. It's not something that just showed up. Racism has existed in some form, some fashion, some level for thousands of years, really. You can look throughout history books. You can look at the the things that we studied in school, and you can see how these things began to progress. But even before that, you can look all the way back to the Bible and get some wisdom on this subject. And that's what we're going to do today, as we've done with all of these tough topics. We're not just going to stand here. I'm not going to stand here and give you my opinion. My opinion and uh, 25 cents will help you have a quarter. That's really all it's worth. But what we're going to do is we're going to open God's word, and we're going to try to discern from God's word what we believe about the subject of race and the thought of racism. And so if you got a Bible, flip with me to the book of Genesis. It's the very first book in the Bible. We don't have to look very far to begin to understand a basic idea of how God views race and how God views this idea of racism. In Genesis chapter 1, the very first chapter of the very first book, we see that God is creating everything that exists in the world. He's creating everything in the universe. He's creating everything that we can see and even things that we can't see. And he gets to this place where he begins to create mankind and womankind. And this is what we read beginning in verse 26 of Genesis 1. Then God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. Now, here's what I want you to think about. Have you ever thought what race Adam and Eve were? You ever thought about it? I think for a lot of us, you know, we kind of think through the lens of our own race, potentially. 
Or maybe you think about them in the context of some artistic expression that you've seen where someone has tried to capture this moment of Adam and Eve. So were they white? Were they black? Were they Arabic of some kind? And so we're trying to, were they African? We're trying to figure out what, what race were Adam and Eve. You know what race they were? They were the human race. We are not given anything descriptive here about Adam and Eve other than that they were created in the image of God. They, both of them, male and female, were created in the image of God. And that's important for us to start with this idea of race and racism because we have to understand that from the very first created beings, there was one race, the human race. Now, the story continues to progress, and it's important for us to see all of those things, which we'll get to in a minute. But the first thing that I want you to see related to race is that there was equality in creation. Equality is a word that's used in this this topic a lot, and we're going to use it a couple of times today. But what we need to understand right up front from Genesis chapter 1 is that there was equality in creation. There was no division here based on race. We are not given anything where God was separating them or, or creating them as anything different. They were actually created in the image of God. So you've got your Bibles open, hopefully. If you don't, you've got a smartphone or an app that you can follow along. These scriptures will be up on the screen. I want you to turn now to the New Testament. This is the book of John, John chapter 4. This is the Gospels. This is a part of the Gospels, which are the stories of Jesus Christ. You have Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, these four books that make up a lot of the the things that we know about Jesus in Scripture other than the things that other people wrote about him. So John chapter 4, there's a really interesting story here and an interaction with Jesus and a woman, uh, which in itself would have been an interesting interaction. But Jesus and this woman are sitting together. Jesus has been traveling, and he comes to this well. It's Jacob's well. And I want us to read a little bit of this story here in John chapter 4, beginning in verse 6. We're going to read a few verses, and then we'll continue to talk a little bit. John 4, beginning in verse 6, reading down to verse 10. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. And it was about noon. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, and Jesus said to her, Will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into the town to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, You are a Jew, and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. And Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. Now, there's several important things to note here before I continue to tell you kind of the rest of the story. The, one of them is explicitly stated in the text that we just read, but it is that he is a Jew and she is a Samaritan. And he sits down to get water with her at this well, which would have been unthinkable. Samaritans and Jews did not interact with one another. They actually hated one another. So this was no small thing that Jesus is sitting here talking to this Samaritan woman. This would be, and I'm going to kind of play back to the story here of racism in the Southeast. This would have been if a prominent white businessman in a southeastern United States town in maybe the 1950s or 60s would have walked into the most popular restaurant in the middle of the town square with an African-American woman and they sat down for a meal. Unthinkable. Would not have been accepted. This is what's taking place here. And this is not an out-of-the-way place. This is a place where people would have come to Jacob's well to draw water for themselves and for their family. And so Jesus sits down and he begins talking to this. So the first thing that you need to understand about this interaction is that there is division between these two people. He's a Jew and she's a Samaritan and they should not be talking. They should not be interacting. The second thing that we see in this story, which is important, 
is that the woman was focusing on those external things. She could not seem to get past, at least for the next maybe 15 verses or so, she could not seem to get past the external things that should divide them. And Jesus, in turn, chose to focus on the internal things that united them. That's important for us, because here's how this story plays out. He says, listen, if you knew the gift that I had, you you would be asking me for water. And so they have this conversation now where, where they start to talk about being thirsty and what it means. And he says, if, I, if you drink of the living water, you'll never be thirsty again. This is about more than just drinking some water. This is about a, a soul thing. This is about something on the inside of you that you have need of that you may not even know. And I have the answer to that. And so she goes on and she says, okay, yeah, I, I get what you're saying. And we understand the Messiah. And there's coming a day when the Jews say that we're going to worship. And he says, no, no, listen, here's what you don't understand. You're worshiping something you don't even understand. But if you fully understand it, understood it, you would know that I'm standing right in front of you. He even says at the end of this story, he says, the one that you are talking about is right there, right here. It's right in front. I am right in front of you. The one of whom you're talking about is here. And so he says, hey, go get your husband. She says, well, I don't, I don't have a husband. He says, you're right. Not only do you not have a husband, you've had five husbands, and the man that you're living with now is not your husband. And she feels this shame and this guilt potentially about what she's living in. And so then he starts to talk to her, and the, the story that we've already kind of played out here, this is this interaction. And so then she goes running into the town, and she tells everybody in the town, come meet the man who told me everything I ever did. And Samaritans come out to the well And it says that when they come out, man, there are people that respond to Jesus and the message of Jesus. And this is important because Jesus refused to allow the external differences that they may have had to keep him from addressing the internal things that united them. Her need for salvation. His ability to provide salvation. Now, there's there's more here than just race. She's a woman. He's a man. She's a sinner. He is sinless. And yet he sat down right beside her and had a conversation. What if you and I were less concerned about the things that divided us and we allowed the things that unite us to bring us together? What we see here in this story is that not only was there equality in creation, there's also equality in Christ. That Jesus himself is modeling for us how to interact with people that are different than us. He's modeling for us how to interact with people by looking inside of their soul rather than looking at something about their skin. That's a big deal. Jesus in other places in the gospel tells us, in response to questions from some religious leaders who say, hey, what's the most important thing we should do? What should we turn our attention to? What should we focus on? He says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. And this one time in the book of Luke, this one time when he says that, in response to a question, one of them asks him, well, then who is my neighbor? That's important. You can keep that in mind. The question that was actually asked was, who is my neighbor? And in response to that, Jesus tells a story. It's the story of the Good Samaritan. Many of us know this story. Even if you're not really a a faith person, you're not a believer, you don't really read the Bible, you've heard the story, or at least the philosophy of the Good Samaritan. 
It's this idea that there was a man who was traveling down a road, and while he was traveling, he was robbed and beaten and left for dead in the ditch. And through this story that we hear from Jesus, we actually see that the religious people walk by this man even so much as to get on the other side of the road from where he's at so that they can continue traveling on their way. But in the story that Jesus tells us, he says that there was a man who stopped and he cared for the man that was in the ditch. And he, he you know, kind of bandaged up his wounds and he, he put him on his animal and he took him to a hotel and he paid for him to stay there and he left money for him to stay even longer than the man himself was able to stay. Coincidentally, this was also a Samaritan Man, this was an interesting use of race here and ethnicity for Jesus to even use the Samaritan as the hero of the story because he was talking to a bunch of Jewish leaders who would have been offended that the hero of the story was someone that they should not even be a part of talking to. They shouldn't even be interacting with. And so Jesus is using that. And then he says to the crowd, who was the neighbor? The question was, who is my neighbor? Who should I love? Who should I love as much as I love myself? Who should I be compassionate towards? And Jesus says, no, 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 no. Who actually acted like the nature of God? Was it the religious people who went around and away and were too busy about their lives and too busy doing their religious stuff that they actually forgot to love somebody in need? Or was it a group of people that you think have no right reflecting the nature and character of God? Not who is your neighbor, who should you love, who acted like a neighbor? He said, the one that showed mercy. He said, yeah, 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 go and do likewise. Don't go continuing to ask, who can I get away with not loving? Who can I get away with not being kind to? Don't do that. Don't look for the loophole. No, 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 no. Go and do likewise. Go and show mercy. Go and sit beside people that you have nothing in common with. Go and sit beside people who are exactly the same as you, except you can't see it because you're stuck looking at the external when you should see that there's a lot more in common that you have with them in the internal. He tells this story so that they would see that there is equality in Christ. There is equality in the nature of God, and that's important for all of us because Jesus makes no qualifiers about who our neighbor is. He doesn't say, love your neighbor if they meet these criteria. Love your neighbor if they fit this description. Love your neighbor if they grew up in this area. Love your neighbor if they're from this place. Love your neighbor. No, no, no. He says, love your neighbor as you do yourself. And he puts that on even ground with loving God, with all of your heart and all of your soul and all of your mind and all of your strength. And he says that those things together are the most important thing that you can do with your life. He gives no qualifiers to how you get to choose equality. He says, no, 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 reflect the equality that's found in creation and reflect the equality that's found in Christ. If you keep reading through the New Testament, you come to the book of Acts. The book of Acts is one of my favorite stories, favorite books in all of Scripture, because I think that it, it's vital to the entire story of the church. I, obviously, my life is kind of a part of the church. I love what I do. I love getting to be a part of the church. And so I love the story of the church and the formation of the church, and we see that in the book of Acts. What we see is we see the, the followers of Jesus really forming and then handing off leadership of the church to groups of people in these different towns. 
And there's this interesting thing that happens because really up to this point, for the most part, other than those interactions that Jesus himself had with people when, he was, when the stories were being told about him in the four Gospels, the gospel and the salvation of man was still really relegated to the Jewish people. It was still really just kind of a one race, one nationality, one group of people, one culture kind of story until you get to the book of Acts. You see this really interesting thing happen in, in Acts chapter 2. In Acts chapter 2 is where we see the, the Holy Spirit descend like cloven tongues of fire on a group of people in an upper room. And they come walking out of that room into the streets there. And there on the streets are people representing every nation of the world. And they come out speaking the languages of every group of people that are standing there on the road. Every single group of people is hearing the message of salvation in the native tongue that they came to town speaking. And they said, how, how are all of these Jewish people speaking all of these different languages? Now, interesting to me is that this is really the completion of a story that began all the way back in the book of Genesis. In the book of Genesis, we read a story known as the Tower of Babel, where this group of people who were supposed to spread out when they came off the ark there, it was Noah's descendants. When they came off the ark, they were commanded, go out, be fruitful, multiply, spread out in the earth, and, and just go and live. And instead, what they did is they all came to this one place and congregated. And when they all got together, you know what happens when a bunch of people get together. Nothing good can happen. And so they're just kind of hanging out, trying to make plans about how they themselves can have the same power and the same ability of God. And they decide that they're going to build a tower all the way to the heavens so that they can get to God. And I don't really understand all the details of the story. I've wrestled with it a lot. I've read all kinds of different things. I wrote a paper on it in college that I'm pretty sure was wrong. But here's what I do know. That they decided they were going to try to get all the way to God. And somehow in their efforts, God decided that he needed to stop what they were doing. And so what he does is he scatters them. He gets them to speak different languages. He spreads them out. He sends them out. And so they go out into the, into the different places in the world from this one place where they had been gathered. And you see that story continue all throughout the Old Testament, all throughout history. You get to the stories of Jesus, and then you get to the book of Acts. And when you come to Acts chapter 2, all those places that God sent a bunch of people to speak a bunch of different languages came back together to the city of God. And when God's power fell on his followers, they were speaking all of the languages that God sent them away speaking. That's a powerful picture for me. And then, so it's almost like God's foreshadowing that there's something about reconciliation that he's wanting to tell in the story of the book of Acts. And then we get to this really interesting story in Acts chapter 10. Peter, who's one of my favorites in all of scripture, he, he, he's a guy that just, he kind of just speaks when he's not supposed to speak, and he's quiet when he's supposed to speak up, and he just does really dumb things, and so I relate to him really well. And so Peter is a guy who now, after denying Jesus right before he goes to the cross, they're like, hey, didn't you know him? He's like, no, I didn't know him. They're like, no, no, I think I saw you with him. He's like, nope, you saw somebody else. Looks like me. It's not me. He's like, hey, I'm sure. And he's like cussing. No, I did not. You're crazy. I... And then he sees Jesus and he locks eyes. and He's like, man, I have completely let down the rabbi. Completely let down the one who called me out of nothing to give me everything. And then after Jesus goes to the cross and he goes to the tomb, he's dead. And then he raises from the dead. Jesus comes back to Peter and he says, Peter, do you love me? And he says, yeah, you know I love you. He says, well, feed my sheep. Do you love me? Yeah, feed my lambs. Do you love me? Feed my sheep. He gives him three times to profess his love, maybe for the three times that he denied him. I don't know. Maybe that's just good storytelling. And then all of a sudden, something changes in Peter. He's one of those people that's sitting in the upper room there waiting on the power and the presence of the Holy Spirit to come because Jesus told him to go and wait. And so Peter did. 
And under the power of God, when he comes walking out of that upper room, as people are speaking in all these known languages, Peter stands up and he begins to proclaim the message of salvation to all the people that are standing there on the streets. He says, here's what you need to know. Salvation is not through the law, it's through Jesus Christ. And the Bible tells us that 3,000 people were added to the church that day, which is awesome. And then the story of Peter kind of gets pushed to the side a little bit. We see him a little bit. We don't see him a little bit. And then in Acts chapter 10, he's been traveling, and he shows up to some friend's house, and he's waiting there, and it's about lunchtime one day, and he's hungry. He's a lot like me. That's why I relate to him. I don't skip many meals. And so it's noon. The Bible tells us it actually says that. And he's waiting on some people to fix his lunch. And so while he's waiting, he goes up to the top of the roof of the place he's staying there. It says it's a flat roof. I'm not sure why that's important, but he's just kind of hanging out on a flat roof, waiting on lunch to be served. And while he's there, he has a vision. And in this vision, he sees this sheet falling from heaven. And on that sheet are a bunch of different types of animals, reptiles and animals and birds and all these different things. And this voice in the vision says to him, hey, kill these animals and eat them. And Peter says, no, 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 I'm a Jew. I don't eat some of these things. I can't eat them because they're unclean. And you have to know about what unclean means because he's referencing the Jewish law from the Old Testament. And in that Jewish law, there were things that you didn't do and things you did do to please and honor God. And one of those things was that there were certain foods you could eat and certain foods you could not eat. And so Peter says, no, 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 I'm a good Jew. I keep the law, and so that's unclean, and I'm not going to do it. And the voice says to him, how dare you declare something unclean that God has made clean? This happens three times in that vision, and then all of a sudden some men show up. I don't know if Peter got to eat that day. It's the saddest part of the story to me, but I'm not sure. It seems like maybe he had to skip a meal because eventually these guys show up and they say, hey, you're supposed to come with us. And he's like, yeah, the vision that I just had, the voice told me that there were some men that were going to be downstairs and that when I came downstairs, they were going to ask me to go somewhere. And so I've got to go with you right now. I got to go. And they're like, okay, come with us to a Roman citizen, a Roman soldier's house. I want you to come with us. Different nationality, different race, different group of people here. I want you to come to this house. And this is what I want us to read, beginning in verse 24 of Acts chapter 10. They arrived in Caesarea the following day, and Cornelius was waiting for them and had called together his relatives and close friends. And as Peter entered his home, Cornelius, who's that Roman soldier, he fell at his feet and worshipped him, Peter. But Peter pulled him up and said, stand up, I'm a human being just like you. So they talked together and went inside where many others were assembled. And Peter told them, you know, it is against our laws for a Jewish man to enter a Gentile home like this or to be associated with you. But God has shown me that I should no longer think of anyone as impure or unclean. So I came without objection as soon as I, sent, I was sent for. Now tell me why you sent for me. And in that moment, we see the transformation of not just Cornelius, but his family members. And they receive the power of God. They receive salvation. It is the change in the entire gospel message. It really changes the entire narrative. Now, they're going to wrestle with it. The Jewish people are going to wrestle with it for about the next five or six chapters of the book of Acts, and they're going to try to decide if Gentiles can actually be saved if they don't follow parts of the law. But what I think is important for all of us to understand that Peter demonstrates here is that not only is there equality in creation, not only is there equality in Christ, there is equality in the gospel. That this story here in Acts chapter 10 shows us that everyone in the sight of God is viewed as equals. They're either in need of the salvation of God 
or they have received the salvation of God. And that's the only thing that separates them. Galatians chapter 3, verses 26 through 29 says this, For you all are children of God through faith in Christ Jesus. All who have been united with Christ in baptism have put on Christ like putting on new clothes. There is no longer Jew or Gentile, slave or free, male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And now that you belong to Christ, you are the true children of Abraham. You are his heirs, and God, God's promise to Abraham belongs to you. What he's saying is whatever was your dividing line, whatever it was that you were using to try to be different, you just put on new clothes. Your external is no longer different anymore. Not only is your internal the same because you've received the free gift of salvation, but you put on the righteousness of God. And so he just sees you through Christ, and the external is the same now too. He says everything that you try to use to divide no longer matters. And here's what you would say to me, I, I assume. You would say, this all sounds really well and good. I mean, uh, you know, you're making a lot of sense, Jeremy. I mean, you're really, really smart. I'm sure that college paper was right and not wrong. I can hear you saying that right now. I'm really discerning in that way. Maybe you're saying, that was a long time ago. That was way in the past. That's an old story. I'm not even sure if I believe it was true. You don't know how I was raised. You don't know the people that I lived with. You don't know the people that I work with. You can't expect me to believe that a book several thousand years ago can speak to the issue today. And I'll do you one better than that. Not only does this book speak to these issues back then, not only does this book speak to these issues today, it actually speaks to us about what's to come. The book of Revelation is the last book in the Bible. We read from the very first book of the Bible in Genesis chapter 1, but the book of Revelation is the end. It's the end of the story. It's a vision from John, and it includes some actual things, both literal and some representative things about what's to come, what's going to happen in the days to come, some of those things that we don't really fully understand. And here's what it says in Revelation chapter 7, verses 9 and 10. After this, I looked. And there before me was a great multitude that no one could count from every nation, tribe, people, and language, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. And they were wearing white robes and were holding palm branches in their hands, and they cried out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Not only is there equality in creation, not only is there equality in Christ, not only is there equality in the Gospels, the vision of John tells us that there's equality in eternity. There's equality in eternity. And here's what I want you to know today from my heart, even if you walk out of this room disagreeing with me. Racism is not a reflection of the love of God. I don't care where you were born, how you were raised, or how funny the joke is. Racism is not a reflection of the love of God. And if God tells us through creation and through Christ and through the gospels and through the story of eternity that there's equality for all mankind, what gives us the right to treat anyone as unequals? What gives us the right? You know, it's been said that Sunday morning from 10 to 11 a.m., is the most segregated hour of the week because whites worship with whites and blacks worship with blacks and Hispanics worship with Hispanics and so on. And I believe that this breaks the heart of God. 
I believe, unfortunately, that we are just as guilty. And I want to break the mold. Because I think that it's unfortunate that we reflect more the culture of the South than the kingdom of God when we gather to worship. This is a subject that I'm very passionate about, but I've tried my best today to make sure that we stayed close to the narrative of the gospel and not to the opinions that I have. I believe if you look from the very first book to the very last book, you see that the heart of God is for equality in all people. That the way that you and I have chosen to value people and judge people is not the way that God does. And I do not believe that this just deals with race. I believe that this is for any type of ism, sexism, ageism. How do you view people that don't look like you? Where do you have prejudice in your heart? How do you view women and men and old people and young people and rich people and poor people? How do you view people even within your own race? Are they white trash? Are they thugs? Is there something that you have defined about this subset within races, within genders, within age groups? How do we value and define people? And does it truly reflect the love of God? Or does it reflect the way that we were raised or what they taught us way back then? It really is a question of how wide do I think that the love of God spreads? Yeah. How wide do I think that the love of God spreads? Because unfortunately for a lot of us, we've allowed our culture and our context to override our God-given conscience. And so you say, well, Jeremy, that's great. What now? What do I do now if I feel in my heart like I, I struggle with just racism? I struggle with racist tendencies. I struggle with thinking it's okay because of how I was raised. What do I do with that? I think you do just what you do with anything else you know doesn't reflect the nature of God. I think you ask him for forgiveness. You ask him for healing and you ask him to take it away. You say, well, what do I do if I've been hurt by racism? What do I do if I feel like, man, people have hurt me, people judge me? No matter my race, no matter my age, no matter my gender, what do I do if I feel like I've been hurt because of some ism? I think you do what you do anytime you've been hurt by something. You ask God to heal you. You ask God to forgive them. And you work towards reconciliation. And so as some what nows, here's what I would say. Seek healing from God for perpetuating racism or for hurt as the victim of racism or any other type of ism for that matter. Two, I think you seek forgiveness from those who you've hurt or who have hurt you. And three, I think you set out to model the equality found in creation, in Christ, in the gospel, and in eternity. Let's pray. God, this is a tough topic, especially in the South, especially in Cherokee County. We've all been exposed to varying degrees of racism. Maybe we've been the ones perpetuating it, or maybe we've been the ones hurt by it. Maybe we know people that have. Maybe we watch the news of things that are happening around this nation and around this world, and we see people that are up in arms, and we're not really sure because we don't understand it completely. But God, today I pray that you would help us to see equality in creation, equality in Christ equality in the gospels and equality in eternity but God you have a plan for reconciliation 
And it just started with one race, the human race. And it just ends with one race, worshiping around the throne, the human race. So God, I pray that you would help us to focus not on the things that may divide us, but on the things that unite us. That God, you would try to help us not to just become more tolerant, but God, you would help us to reflect the family of God. That we as the church would lead the way. That we as Christians would lead the way for those in this room that call themselves Christians. And so God, now I pray that you would help me and you would help us. God, to seek reconciliation. Forgive us where we've been wrong. God, forgive those who have hurt us. God, we pray today for healing and we pray that you would help us to be instruments of healing. Let us model the equality that reflects the nature of God. In Jesus' name I pray.